Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, it's board versus bench as Manchester United slump to a crushing home defeat to Spurs. Ed Woodward and Josie Mourinho appear to be on collision course as the club's failure to secure a top-class defender in the transfer window becomes ever more stark. Is this the fault of United's dealmaker, or is their manager in the early stages of a traditional third-season meltdown? We deep-dive into the issues arising from a 3-0 defeat. While United appear in crisis after a slow transfer window, Spurs appear to be firing on all cylinders despite not signing anyone. We ask can Maurizio Pochettino's men overcome the odds and wrest the title from Man City? And who are the Premier League clubs on the up after three games of the season? We assess the performances of five clubs who can achieve big things in the season ahead. Okay, Duncan, well, last week I opened the podcast by asking you if Manchester United were entering the post-Jose Mourinho era. And last night we saw at Old Trafford United go down 3-0 to Spurs after a pretty good first-half performance. They capitulated in that second half. One of the key things from that game was the image of the camera cutting to Ed Woodward and his grimacing and his upset at the, the performance. It was clear to see... Are we now seeing a battle between Jose Mourinho and Ed Woodward for control of this era of Manchester United? I think uh, I think the two have never been so publicly opposed as they are now. I think um, the summer we've had um, with the recruitment policy that's been followed by Ed Woodward on his board with just €77 million Euros total spend, one experienced um first team starter added to a squad um, that is expected to challenge for Manchester City for the the Premier League title and expected to challenge for the Champions League um, has has drawn those fault lines and and obviously Jose Mourinho has spent the summer um, until the transfer window closed making it very clear that he felt that recruitment was insufficient making it clear that he wanted um, ideally um, two more bodies in the squad, right winger um, uh, and a top centre-back, uh, filling the obvious holes, which most people can see, are in, in that squad, and which we're on show again last night. Um, and Ed Woodward hasn't been happy about that, and, and Jose Mourinho hasn't been happy about the response of Ed Woodward. Um, and that, that story has been very well told, um, uh, extensively described. And I think, most importantly, the Manchester United support are very aware of what's happened and um, are getting to the point where they're choosing sides between the board, um, uh, which includes and was put in place by the Glazer family, with which the Manchester United support have a long history of antipathy and antagonism, um, and the manager who I think uh, certainly um, a good chunk of the support feel if there are decisions to be made on recruitment at a Premier League club, then they would rather have um, the man who's won three Premier League titles and two Champions Leagues, multiple trophies in England, Portugal, Italy and Spain, making those decisions on recruitment rather than a former chartered accountant um, investment banker who has never had a position in a football club 
um, prior to his involvement in Manchester United. And I think that dichotomy is not going to serve um, Ed Woodward well. I don't think he can, he can win that conflict um, because any rational person will say that uh, the, the football manager who has won those titles has got a better grip on what his football team requires to meet the targets set for him um, by the board and set by the general public and the, you know, the, the, the punditry, the media expectation of how he should play football and what he should win than um, an investment banker. Um, so is it one or the other? I don't know if it's one or the other. I, I can see this, this being resolved, but it's certainly a very um, clear conflict and a clear point of issue at Manchester United at present. I think it's important to point out that um, <clears throat> Edward was very clever uh, around four or five years ago in choosing his allies um, at Manchester United. Uh, on one hand, he had the outgoing chief executive um, who had been uh, very close to Sir Alex Ferguson and, and David Gill, who um, was someone who I think in general had a better understanding of football and football players and football management than Woodward's ever managed to um, exhibit uh, so far in his career as executive vice chairman. And Gill remains on as a member of the board, but I think as a very uh, sort of, I don't say exiled figure, but certainly someone who doesn't have an awful lot of influence. His position at UEFA is something which is advantageous to Manchester United regarding um, their uh, position as one of the elite clubs in the world. So, <sighs> Woodward basically, um, I, I, from my knowledge, from my information and from my perspective, uh, colluded with uh, Joel and Avram Glazer, the two members of the Glazer family who are most interested and who remain on the Manchester United board, to um, take a new direction for the club. So, Woodward's promotion uh, to Gill's position was assured because and on the basis of what the politics of the Glazers um, was purported to be. And that, as we've spoken about on the Transfer Window podcast in the past, was that they wanted more influence in the football department, um, therefore more influence in investment and sales, etc., etc. Uh, appointment of managers, appointment and buying of players. Now, so Woodward's been clever. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's a, he's a Machiavelli. I don't, think he, I don't think he's that intelligent. But he's clever enough to put himself in a position whereby he is the uh, conciliary between the Glazers and the football department and has been. And as Manchester United have progressed, and by that I mean chronologically, not in terms of football, um, in the last four years, his position has become stronger. His position is stronger because, and it's been highlighted in the last week, uh, the share price at Manchester United has reached an all-time high of $24 per share. The uh, capitalisation of the club is huge. The actual uh, market price of the club would be in excess of $3.5 billion um, on the New York Stock Exchange. So what he's done is, is, is effectively make the Glazers money, is what he's done in the time that he's been there, regardless of success on the pitch, which... Mourinho has delivered in terms of a Europa League trophy, uh, League Cup, etc. So what you have is, I don't think, a choice between the two. Uh, I think Manchester did need Jose Mourinho um, because he is the best manager out there for them at this point in time, regardless of against Spurs last night and losing 3-2 at Brighton the week before. Um, I think Zidane, who has been mentioned as a potential successor, is... Uh, still a novice. Um, he had a short yeah, term standard no, where he. He's won three European Cups. A novice? Look at the uh, European Cups, Real Madrid won in their history, Johnny. And look at the squad that Zidane inherited. And in his short time at the club, he managed to win. Did he win the league or did he win cup competitions? He won the league once. Okay, and won the Champions League three times. Well done, you. <laughs> it's not bad. It's the same amount of times that Manchester United have Johnny, won it. Johnny, get at work. Ask yourself that question. Why is no one employing him? Because there was a lot of jobs going in the summer. 
including Arsenal, and he's still not there. So I think people do have reservations about Zidane because of his close relationship with Real Madrid and with the fact that he was appointed as uh, an emergency, if you like, and then guided a team. Yeah, look, I'm not... Okay, I take your point. It's it's a little bit kind of, you know, uh, flippant to say he only won. He's not won, a vastly but... experienced manager with, with 10 or 15 years of success behind him. I, I take your point. Okay, my point, my point as well with regarding Manchester United is um, if they wanted Zidane, they'd have appointed him by now, and, they, and that's not happened. I think they realise that there, there are problems which are deeper lying um, there, which only an experienced coach like Mourinho can solve. And I would say as well, from uh, the point of view of Manchester United going forward after this week, is that this probably is the greatest challenge of Mourinho's career to turn this team around. But knowing Mourinho for the last 15 years or so and, um, and knowing his modus operandi is one I think he relishes. And so when he has a fight in a press room, well, it's a fight, it's more of a, you know, handbags, um, with journalists, that to me represents someone who is not throwing the towel in. He's actually, he's up for it. He's going to do it. He's going to take everyone on and, and try and turn it around and, and make it happen. Now, whether or not he's capable of that remains to be seen. But my point is, this is, you know, people are portraying him as a dead man walking, et cetera, et cetera. He's not. He's absolutely not a dead man walking. He's a very, very vibrant man who is going to challenge and fight to the death in order to make that team successful. So I think it's very, very premature to say that Mourinho's time at United is coming to an end and that Woodward you know, is the man who's won the battle, et cetera, et cetera. I think there will be a, a kind of coming together of the two in the January transfer window. And if Mourinho can at least keep United in contention until that point, then he may well see that he gets the funds he needs to buy at least one or two very good players in January. Duncan, he started the game with Phil Jones and Chris Smalling at centre-backs after dropping Eric Bailly and uh, Lindelof from the, the Brighton game. These are two Premiership-winning centre-backs. Is there a sense that Mourinho has rocked their confidence with his comments, his public comments regarding needing more cent- central defenders? And that's part of the problem here on the pitch. Well, they are Premier League centre-backs in the sense that they are centre-backs who hold... Premier League um, medal winners' medals. But I think if you were to go back to when they won the Premier League and go back to and look at the number of games they played as centre-backs for Sir Alex Ferguson, particularly as first-choice centre-backs for Sir Alex Ferguson, you find it's a very small number. Um, and the, 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 there's an interesting comparison with Chris Smalling and... Um, and Phil Jones and Eric Bailly and Victor Lindelof, in that all four of them were were purchased by Manchester United at a very young age. Um, so Lindelof and Bailly both signed um, when they were 22 years of age. All four of them were signed as uh, talented, young centre-backs who the manager at the time felt could be developed into um, top centre-backs alongside high-quality, um, experienced central defenders, which is what Ferguson had throughout his time as manager, which, which was something he always prioritised throughout his time as manager, both at Aberdeen and um, Manchester United, and, and were a core of his, of his, his many title-winning sides. Um, I think you can you can look at Chris Smalling and Phil Jones and ask yourself whether any of the um, four main clubs competing for a Champions League place with uh, with Manchester United this season whether they would want them as starting centre backs for uh, their teams at present. And I think the answer is a very clear no. Um, Lindelof and Bailly, as we discussed last week. Um, Essentially, what's happened there is United Mourinho has been given a budget to uh, to buy a centre back in each of the two win the two past summer windows, but not been given a budget to buy a top centre back, which is what he identified it as the club is needing. Um, and you've had development players there. By I think the um, 
that it's clear that he started far better than anyone expected, including the people that, that work closely with, with Eric Bailly, who I, who I know um, reasonably well, uh, including people who'd watched him in Spain, um, and including the expectation when he was signed. He was, he was told, we, we, you come over, we're not going to put you straight into the team. We don't see you as the starting centre-back for this first season. We see you as getting some games um, and developing your talent and then you will become starting centre back if you if you do what's expected for you. He came in and was Player of the Month in his first season at Manchester United. Then um, suffered an injury. Um, again, if you if you um, talk to people around him, there was a there was a feeling going into his second season that he felt it would be too easy for him because he had immediately surpassed all the the other centre backs at the club in taking that starting slot. And then he had another. Um, season where he struggled with injury, African nations appearances, um, and and didn't perform. Now, if if you want to sign development centre backs, you've got to have good centre backs alongside them. It's very hard to sign a development centre back, put them in as first choice into uh, the maelstrom which is Manchester United, and expect them to be able to deal with all of that. The two experienced centre backs they've got, Jones and Smalling, clearly struggle with these big games. They struggle with the, the level of expectation upon them. And that's when you and, and make errors, individual errors, which we saw last night. And you know, any reasonable analysis of that game would would be that Mourinho got it tactically and strategically correct. He made he set his team up in a way that caught Tottenham by surprise, created a lot of chances first half. Um, essentially stopped uh, Tottenham's passing game. And then they lost the game because of individual defensive errors in each of the goals. So his argument is that the team requires better centre-backs. If you don't see that, that, that that's the case from having watched Manchester United for the past five seasons, then really you have to have a, a proper look at at how you understand football, because it's obvious their centre-backs aren't good enough. Um, and if, if Woodward's uh, briefing to uh, the press is that there wasn't value in the market, that they, that they weren't able to um, find a player uh, at a reasonable cost who was better than what they had, then you have to ask, why aren't the funds there for a club like Manchester United to find a, a centre-back better on the market than what they had because what they have isn't of sufficient standard. That much is clear. You'd be delighted to know, of course, Duncan, that puts you in the same boat as Big Sam, who was saying a lot of these things on an uh, 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 inferior radio station and show earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> we know you're a fan Super of Big Sam, Duncan. So. Super size Sam's been saying some very intelligent things on that inferior radio show of late, as, as, I, as I've noticed. Um, maybe, he's, maybe he's had a good summer and, uh, and, uh, and reassessed uh, uh, his way of uh, looking at football. I think, uh, I'm quite happy to be in the same boat as Super size Sam in this one. Perhaps he's laid off the pint, be... pints of wine and gone to beer. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Johnny, on this one... Um, I think it's important to contextualise um, what's been going on in the last, certainly the last 24 hours, but the last three months, six months, um, with regards to Mourinho. He is someone who divides opinion. We know that and we accept that. He can sometimes be charming and funny. He can sometimes be um, downright sullen and sometimes spiteful. Someone like Mourinho will always invite agendas um, from people, whether it be on the Manchester United board, on the Chelsea board, in the, in the dressing room, or, or in newspapers and media outlets. And I think it's unfortunate that um, some people uh, fail to be objective when they um, want to judge him uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but when he gets criticised, in fact, absolutely mullered, as players would say, for um, leaving a press conference with the phrase, 
three titles. That's why I've won. That's more than the other 19 managers together. That's a statement of fact. It's not an opinion. It's not um, him even you know, boosting himself. That's simply a fact. So when he says, respect, 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 man, I think he's entitled to say that, especially after a game in which his team did perform very, very well. And then as Duncan has explicated, um, centre-backs let him down once again. Um, any manager at Manchester United, including Sir Alex Ferguson, would complain if he did not get the backing of the financial side of the club to allow both him and the team and therefore the club itself to compete at the highest level. It just that, you know, that's a given. And it, it's a very well-known fact, as much as his three titles are, that Manchester United did not invest in an experienced centre-back that Mourinho had required and asked for three months in advance of the window closing. It just didn't happen. Um, but again, I go back to the word contextualise. I myself, in 20 years of journalism, have been in press conferences which are much more rancorous and, than uh, Mourinho's last night and, and, and certainly managers walking in, in much less justified circumstances. Um, many of them involve Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, one of them was when I, I was quite new to um, working in England and uh, I went to see Charlton play Manchester United in a Premier League game. I think it was the second or third game of the season. Um, and Roy Keane was incredible, giving one of those monster performances where he not only controlled the game, but scored and assisted. And they were 2-0 up. And Fergie, who had a first group stage, as I remember, Champions League tie on the following Wednesday, this was a Saturday game, um, decided to take him off. And at that point, Charlton went up the park and scored two goals. And me being slightly new, but known to Sir Alex, then um, piped up and said to him in the press conference, so um, you, must, you made a tactical error when you, you took Keane off as a sub. Uh, you subbed him in 72 because he was absolutely controlling the game and then obviously he lost two goals. Um, what do you think about that? And he, and he said, with many colourful words, who are you? I don't have to listen to this nonsense. Uh, why don't you off back to wherever you came from, etc., etc., and walked out. To which the Manchester United travelling press, i.e. the guys who do the Manchester beat, were all like, who did you do that for? You can't say that to Fergie. And I was like, what? I was making an obvious point about his substitutions. Now, that wasn't covered by television, but if it had been, because it was a there was a daily's briefing, if you like, that has in daily newspapers. Then people would have said at the time, oh my God, Fergie's lost it, he's gone, etc., etc." In much, I think, uh, less sort of admirable circumstances than Mourinho did last night. So the idea that, you know, we should be causing a massive storm or at least, you know, making a lot of what happened um, after the Tottenham Hotspur game. Uh, I think is just a little bit exaggerated. And I think most journalists would agree um, that they've been in that situation that I've just described where a manager has, you know, sworn or insulted or um, exited um, a press briefing or media briefing in circumstances which were um, less controversial than which Mourinho did last uh, night against Spurs. So it, it's always about Mourinho because it's, it's his name and that's what he brings to the party, his box office. But I don't think that um, people should read so much into what might now happen as a result of what happened in terms of both the game, i.e. the result, and the way that he responded. Because he, he doesn't become a bad manager because he walks out of a press conference. He only becomes a bad manager if he doesn't exceed or indeed meet expectations at the football club and we're only three games into the season so you know there's a lot more to come and, and that's I think that you know any speculation regarding him being sacked or Woodward having a, a, an effect uh, in terms of trying to replace him I think is misguided at this moment in time.
Well done on the self-censorship, Ian, there. A lot better than last week's Duncan <laughs> Castle's effort. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, just on, I, I, I think those the press conferences are, are illuminating because Mourinho's given two press conferences uh, in the last week um, or the last five days. And one of them, he was uh, front-page news for apparently being monosyllabic. Um, uh, allegedly only speaking for 259 seconds. Um, actually, he carried on speaking after those 259 seconds to um, some of the newspapers who put him on the front page saying he'd only spoke for 259 seconds and made that uh, the headline um, story on a day when, for example, Hugo Lloris had been charged with uh, drunk driving. Uh, last night, the story w was, again, about his press conference, this time because he'd spoken too much and had um, supposedly gone into meltdown um, because he'd walked out of a press conference um, asking for respect. Actually, if you, if you watch that press conference, it's available on video, you can see it on YouTube, you'll see that the, the Manchester United press officer had called the press conference to a close before Mourinho made his, his final statement. Um, to the journalist talking about the number of titles he'd won. I, I think um, the most important point he made in that press conference, which you can, you know, I've quoted it on, on Twitter, was asking the journalists to make a decision. Do you want results or do you want style of football? I come in after we've won games, um, to paraphrase him, and um, you question over the style of football. I come in after we play the kind of attacking, aggressive, dominant football you're asking um, me to play, like we did tonight, and it's about results. So, <laughs> which one is it? And and you know, I, I think that's a fair question. I some of the coverage of this stuff I find very strange. I mean, you have Richard Keyes after the. Um, the, the 259 second press conference. And let, let's be clear, after the points Ian made, Jose Mourinho didn't swear at anyone in these press conferences. He didn't um, end them, terminate them himself. He didn't walk out because he didn't like a question. He answered a number of questions. He might not have answered them all in detail, but he answered them. Um, that, you know, I, as, a, as someone who's, uh, who's worked in the industry for 20 years, that doesn't strike me as particularly bad behaviour from a manager in a press conference. I've seen it a lot, lot worse. Yet Richard Keyes had a tweet after the Friday press conference, how much lower can Mourinho drag the good name of Manchester United and calling him the enemy of football? I mean, for me, the, there's some very short memories involved here. Sir Alex Ferguson, greatest Manchester United manager of all time, for seven years, didn't do a single post-match Premier League press conference. For seven years, he didn't talk to the BBC because of... Um, I think that was after my press conference at Charlton, Duncan. I think I might have just got off. <laughs> That's the real reason why you stopped speaking for seven years. <laughs> not that we're Jason, yeah, not that we're Let's not go into that, guys. <laughs> and and um, so, so Ferguson did that for seven years. He would regularly have a go at journalists in press conferences. He, there's, there's, you'll see footage of him on YouTube talking about having a journalist banned with his press officer just because the journalist had asked him a question he didn't like. Yet, Richard Keyes has Jose Mourinho dragging the good name of Manchester United um, down because he doesn't answer questions in as much detail as, as he would like in a Friday press conference. It, I think that tells you quite a lot about what Ian's saying in terms of the objectivity of some of the people who are making assessments about Jose Mourinho as a manager. Um, and, yeah. There'll be people listening to this who are furious, Duncan, because they'll be thinking that this is a third season Jose Mourinho classic setup here. This is what happens in every third season of Jose Mourinho's career. And what we're doing is we're obfuscating the actual truth of what's going on and that is Josie tends to have a failure in his third season at the club is that not a fair comment either the, the famous third season syndrome um again let's actually take it back to facts um maybe the bbc did a very good piece on this uh last week you'll find it on their website if you type in Mourinho's third season syndrome and bbc um in Josie Mourinho's third season at fc porto 
he won the Champions League, he won the Portuguese League, he um, lost the Portuguese Cup in the, in the final. In his third season at Chelsea, first time around, he won the FA Cup, he won the League Cup, he finished second in the Premier League and reached the semi-finals of the Champions League. In his third season at Real Madrid, he started by winning the Spanish Super Cup against Barcelona. He lost in the final of the Copa, Copa del Rey to Atletico Madrid. He finished second in La Liga and went to the semi-finals of the Champions League. In his third season, at second stint at Chelsea, it was an absolute disaster and he was sacked um, before Christmas. So he's actually won more trophies in his third season um, at his various clubs than, for example, Liverpool and Tottenham have in the last decade. So, third season syndrome. Everyone seems to think that is a thing. It's a reality. But the, the history tells you otherwise. Ask yourself why, why, it's, why everyone believes it's a reality. One of the elements to all this is Sir Alex Ferguson, who's obviously had a period of convalescence after a very serious illness, but behind the scenes, he's always been, since he retired, the football man that you'd expect to be giving advice to the board and keeping them on the right track from the football point of view. Because as we've talked about in the Transfer Window podcast, these guys are not football men. Do you think that Sir Alex can still have a role to play at Manchester United in, in bringing this all back together? I, I think that'd be very difficult, Johnny, to be quite honest. Um this all goes back to when uh, Ferguson announced that he wanted to retire to the Glazer family. Um, he did so only on the basis he could choose a successor, which was David Moyes. And as we've spoken about, the, the, the Glazers wanted more influence in the football department. So, um, to my knowledge, um, Sir Alex has had zero influence on anything to do with the football department at Manchester United since the time he retired. Um, he had a little bit of influence regarding um, what happened when Moyes was, was manager, but that was mainly through Moyes himself rather than through speaking to Ed Woodward and the Glazers directly. Um, we obviously wish Sir Alex well in his recovery. Um, from what I'm told from people close to the family, he's not expected to be attending any football matches um, until maybe December uh, this year. I think it would be um, pertinent and relevant if in the next few weeks and months his health being uh, improved and that Woodward or indeed Joel or Avram Glazer uh, met with him and asked his advice on how to take Manchester United forward. However, as I check to see if hell has frozen over, um, I would say that's not going to happen. And that um, the time for that, and indeed the influence of Sir Bobby Charlton has passed, um, I'm told by uh, very uh, influ well people who are involved directly at football clubs, that when you visit Manchester United these days, that um, uh, certainly last season, that um, it's Sir Alex and Sir Bobby Charlton who greet the visiting directors uh, and indeed eat with them while Woodward and Glazers etc disappear to another room to have lunch. That's something which is against the tradition in any boardroom in England and also something which I think is very rude as well um, given that when uh, said people, directors, uh, Woodward etc visit opposing clubs they are entertained regally um, in the boardrooms of the visiting club uh, where Manchester United are playing and uh, there's no segregation nor lack of interaction between the two sets of directors or indeed the two sets of administrators. So I think it's a bit sad, but also I think says something quite significant about how Manchester United um, have, uh, let's just say, uh, developed after the Ferguson era. I, th I think on Sir Alex Ferguson and, and Mourinho, there's, a, there's an important thing to be mentioned that when Jose Mourinho arrived at Manchester United, after a few months at the club, he became extremely, extremely frustrated with the, the organisation of many 
areas around the football team um, and the bureaucracy that was involved in having any decision implemented at the club, even simple things like um, ordering a new desk for his office, um, apparently couldn't be done immediately. It had to go be checked off by various um, people in the organisation to make sure that it fitted into financial budgets. And this, this kind of ran through all decisions, not minor ones like getting a desk for an office, but important ones like um, allowing uh, treatment out of hours for players in the, in the, in the club's um, hydrotherapy pools with, with, uh, where a, you know, a lifeguard had to be in attendance for a professional footballer to, to receive hydrotherapy from a trained um, physiotherapist. Um, to, to be and, fair, Duncan, on that on that point, though, I think Chris Smalling might be available to be a desk. <laughs> <laughs> Cruel, uh, but fair. It, it, the, so the, Mourinho had this frustration with the organisation of the club, and he felt that uh, to improve the infrastructure around the team, it needed to be slimmed down and and made more efficient. And he felt what would greatly improve things would be to have an experienced football figure actively on the board, on the central executive board of the club, who could help push um, for things that were key to the betterment of the football team um, with the money men. And one of the things he tried to do was to get Sir Alex Ferguson, who was formerly a director of the football club, but not involved in the executive board, to take a more influential role in that. That didn't happen. And I think it didn't happen for the reasons that, that Ian has, has mentioned there, and that the Glazers did not want Sir Alex Ferguson to be involved in any kind of executive decision making at Manchester United. But that, I think, tells you a lot about the issues of the club um, and Mourinho's focus, which has been all... Mourinho's been this way at every club, and when he comes into conflict, with owners um, and, and with the, the boards of football clubs. It's because he feels that they're not organised in the most efficient way to help the team achieve on the pitch. And that's where the problems have been at Real Madrid, the problems have been at Chelsea. And that's where the problems are emerging at Manchester United. And the reason for that is, is he is a winner and his focus is on winning. <laughs> that's what motivates him. And when it's not happening, that's what frustrates him more than anything else. So when simple things aren't done to facilitate success, he tries to resolve it, but often ends up coming into conflict with the club over it. The United have resisted some of his, his attempts to improve matters, one of which you would think logically is a very sensible thing to do or would have been a sensible thing to do before Sir Alex's illness, which is to get the most experienced football man in the club, the, the, the man who's had more success than anyone employed by the club, involved in executive decisions in some way. But it didn't happen. OK, guys, I think we should move on to Spurs, who obviously had a fantastic result there last night. Uh, we've talked about Manchester United in detail, but... Perhaps it's a little surprising that Spurs have had such a good start to the season given the lack of signings that they made in the transfer window. Do you think they can actually compete for this league title, Ian? I must admit I was sceptical, Johnny, um, because I think that received knowledge says that you should always improve your squad, especially when you haven't uh, succeeded in winning a trophy. And um, even when you do win the Premier League title, received knowledge says that you must improve the depth and quality of your squad. But in Tottenham's case, um, I do think that in keeping all of their players, not even losing one so far, and of course there's still a small risk of that happening given that there are, the transfer window remains open in certain countries until Friday, um, that they should be praised for that. I think also that... Um, the performances that they have offered so far, and it's only three games in, have been impressive. They've won ugly. They've won beautifully. They've been a little bit fortunate, I think, um, last night uh, against Manchester United in particular when um, they were up against a, a poor um, back to 
Central defenders and, and, and Lucas Moura himself uh, would say that Ander Herrera's attempted challenge on him for his first goal was less than uh, um, effective. But at the same time, I would take Moura as uh, an example of good investment uh, by Daniel Levy, a man who is well respected for being uh, someone who's very difficult to deal with when he's selling players and someone who's very difficult to deal with when he's buying them as well. They, they bought Moura from PSG um, at a £12 million discount on what PSG had paid for him four years earlier. Yes, it's taken him some time to settle in. I think what we saw towards the end of last season when he, when he came into the team more regularly uh, was a player who was, was developing into uh, a league which he was obviously unfamiliar with. I think what we saw against Manchester United was a player who now has a role in a team uh, that he feels comfortable and wants to um, attack and be ambitious about. Uh, and as I said, you know, for £26.2 million, I think was the, what they paid for him, you look at um, comparative buys in sort of attacking midfield for anywhere else in the Premier League. Richarlison, for instance, um, £45 million going up to 55 at Everton. Gilfie Sigurdsson, again at Everton, 50 million. And Lucas Moura costs less, well, on just almost half of that. You have to say, well, when he turns up at Old Trafford and scores two goals um, and performs the manner in which he did, then that's a good investment. Obviously, the season will tell us whether or not he turns out to be as influential as he was uh, at Old Trafford. But at the same time, yeah, I, you know, I think Spurs' biggest problem this season, and I said it last week, will be the uncertainty over their home games and having to play at Wembley or not or playing away games um, when they're supposed to be at home in the first half of the season is going to be frustrating for Mauricio Pochettino and his players. But um, Harry Kane uh, tweeted that he felt like there was a breakthrough performance last night um, to beat Manchester United for the first time in almost 50 years. And, you know, you've got to take that seriously. And... Uh, I think I, for one, I'm a big fan of Pochettino and I, I like the way Spurs play as well. Um, and I, I do generally believe that they will be a challenger this season. Um, we saw uh, Manchester City draw with Wolves uh, last weekend in, I, I think, not an unsurprising performance. They, they, they struggled against Huddersfield last season as well, new, newly promoted team. But I just think, yeah, there's something about Spurs where maybe the experience is now telling for them, i.e. they've got that under their belt and, and they realise what it is to lose a league title when they did against Leicester City three years ago. Um, but they've got a group of players who are, have developed and are more experienced and therefore will be um, challenging for the Premier League title, I think, come March and April next season, uh, next year. I think, I think they, they've certainly done well in, in using the the financial fair play dividend to get Lucas Moura at a discount price. Um, and as you often see with players bought in January, it's it's when they, they've had a, a full pre-season under the new manager and with their, their teammates that you start to, to see what they're truly capable of. And, and he definitely adds a, an additional dimension to what was already a, a, a good attack. Um, and I, I thought... Uh, what was also interesting, you saw him um, in the post-match interviews uh, accepting the, the, the player of the, the match award, um, was the quality of his, of his English. He's very comfortable in the English language, um, uh, in a, having been in England for a, a short period of time, and that's obviously going to help um, with his performances and adaptation in the game. I, th I think you're right. I think last night's results are a very significant one for Tottenham. They have had a very poor record um, in away games against big six teams. Most teams don't get many points away to big six teams, but they have been way down um, the table of 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 the of those um, results um, since Pochettino's appointment. Um, and they did it. I think in some ways it's better to do it in the way they did it last night, and that that was an ad, a, a position of adversity. Um, they could easily have lost that game. They could easily have had the game lost by half time, but they weathered it um, and were very efficient when they 
when they had chances and taking them. Um, and that bodes well. Um, in terms of is it an advantage not to recruit in the window? Yes, to a certain extent, it can be an advantage if you have the quality of squad that Tottenham had. Um, and if, you know, especially when so many of their players were being targeted by other teams, including direct rivals, to retain your squad in one piece obviously gives you a continuity that um, most of the opposition don't have. I still wonder about the absolute depth of the squad, and I think you can't look beyond the fact that Pochettino himself was desperate to, to have recruits added to the team in the summer and, and very much prefaced that on if we are now expected to win things and if we're going to win things, we need a deeper, uh, more talented squad. And you can't ignore um, that that was the manager's own assessment of where they were. Um, we're at the stage of the season where you're playing one game a week. We haven't got into um, you know, the crazy period, the killing fields of winter. We haven't got into the Champions League where Tottenham are now expected to do well. Um, I don't see that they've got enough realistically to win the title. But um, a start like this with the quality of squad they've got puts them in a, in a good position to get certainly closer than they were last season. And puts them in a good place for, for Champions League qualification, which, which it actually is more important to um, the ownership of the club, than I think, than, than winning the title. I think the other factor as well, Johnny, just very quickly, is to say that we see a, um, a United uh, squad at Tottenham. Um, I think if you remember, you go back to last year, uh, Danny Rose gave an interview very early in the season, um, where he said that he, wa he wanted the club to sign players who he didn't have to Google, uh, etc. And I think what's happened is that despite uh, Pochettino's um, desire to uh, sign players to improve the squad, which was clearly there, um, they have a squad who are fairly settled and, f and focused and their ambition remains, uh, which is to obviously win a trophy uh, and, and certainly to challenge for the big trophies as well. So if you look at Leicester City in the season that they won the Premier League, albeit it was a shock and everything else, what you had was, I think, a similar situation. You had a, a squad of players who was very much together, who had a focus and an ambition. And OK, you can't compare Tottenham with Leicester in terms of size of club and everything else in history. But I think what you can do is compare the, the squad and the manager situation. Everything was settled and, and I think you know they were of one mind and they didn't uh, diversify from that or be distracted from that through that season so uh, it's early days but I think Tottenham Liverpool, Manchester City look like, to me like the teams who are going to be challenging OK, well, moving on to our quick-fire round. Um, the Premier League's obviously shaping up. We've had three games. What I want to do is look at the teams that are on the up or heading down. And I don't mean going down as in being relegated, but on a downward spiral or on a downward slide. So I'm going to start with you, Ian, and say, Everton, are they on the up or are they heading down? Um, I think Marco Silva has had a very positive effect um, as well as obviously the um, spending which has taken place in the summer, Johnny. Uh, and again, unfashionable though it may seem, uh, the fact that uh, Theo Walcott has performed the way he has, like he did uh, last weekend, someone who was um, almost forgotten about in terms of his talent and ability to uh, influence games, is suddenly performing at the highest level again, is a testament to the manager's influence and his faith as well. And for me, I, uh, I think despite the um, stupidity of Richarlison and his um, uh, very, very small headbutt uh, to get himself a three-game ban, I think Everton are on the up. Duncan, Watford. Yeah, look, Watford, a uh, perfect start to the season in terms of, of points gained. Um, Watford are they're kind of an anomaly in the in the Premier League in the way that they're run. Um, it's a small club, small support, 
but they have access to one of the best recruitment networks in European football. Um, they shift players in there every year who are almost invariably of um, easily sufficient for Premier League quality and um, better than a club with Watford's financial resources could expect to have. Uh, they started last season extremely well um, under Marco Silva and then lost their way because they wouldn't allow Marco Silva to leave to Everton when he had a, a hugely attractive offer. I think they've got a, a, a capable um, a coach, um, an astute coach in Javi Garcia. Um, and again, without doing a great deal uh, in the recruitment market in terms of big spending, um, I think the, the biggest deal they did was to, to make uh, Belafeo's move um, permanent. Uh, and I know they were they were limited for cash um, for for most of the summer until they sold Richarlison. Um, they look a very solid team um, who I think should easily finish in the, the top half of the Premier League table and um, could potentially um, be the Burnley of this season in terms of sneaking into the Europa League places. And if they do it, they will do it with a with a more attractive brand of football than. And Burnley, so um, definitely a team on the up. Ian, Liverpool. <laughs> to all our lovely Liverpool fans out there, um, it looks like you're on the up. Um, the first three games have been impressive enough. Um, has to be said that you've got to look at opposition, etc., etc. Um, I still think there are. Uh, some deficiencies in the team at Liverpool in terms of uh, where they are strong and where they're not. Um, Becker is obviously a huge um, plus, uh, despite the, the dribbling, um, <laughs> which I thought was great, but you know some people think is is outrageous. Um, I thought it was funny when Klopp said, "You know, I, I've never had a Brazilian keeper before, so I might have to just get used to this." <laughs> yeah, and he also said as well he said, after after the after the game last weekend as well, Johnny. He said, um, "This is the kind of game that you might have drawn last season, which was actually nonsense because they beat Brighton five 0 But um, but to win one 0 he said, "Well, yes, maybe we should make a habit of this." Now he's always good with a quote, um, is is Jurgen, which uh, you know sets him apart from some other managers we've discussed. Uh, so far in the podcast in terms of positivity. So, um, look, I, I think Liverpool, they have to go up. They have to go up because they've invested huge amounts of money. Um, they've almost turned their um, recruitment policy on its head in terms of financing and ambition. So um, I'd say they have to go up and I think they probably will go up. But I don't think that they'll quite get there in terms of winning the Premier League. Duncan, Brighton. Yeah, I think Brighton um, are definitely on the up. Um, I was very impressed by the way they they stuck to the task at Liverpool. Um, and I think we're unfortunate not to come away with a, with a point in the end. Um, goal given away essentially by a, a centre-back um, Playing one of his, his first Premier League games because their their top centre back Lewis Dunk was was out injured um, and played into the hands of uh, of, of Liverpool's uh, counter pressing style. But apart from that, um, didn't really seed a lot of significant chances and became uh, more and more impressive as the game went on. I think I think they've recruited well. I think they have a coherent plan uh, that they've had for a, a long time. I think they've got a lot of intelligent uh, people who know the game well advising them um, and I think they've got a manager who um, plays the percentages he, he has a he, he plays a traditional style um, drills his team well doesn't take too many risks um, as, a, as a starting strategy and gets results like they did against Manchester United by um, having the, the team well set up for their opponents and well motivated um, to play games. And, you know, when you combine all of that with the, the quality of players and the, the, the steady progressive improvements to the squad they've made, and they should be moving up the Premier League, um, which is what they are 
you know, they're, they're threatening to do and what I'd expect them to continue to do this season. Ian, I thought they were terrific against Man City. Even Guardiola said so. Wolves. Absolutely, Johnny. And this is what we need, I think, in the Premier League is for even a club which has been newly promoted. And OK, they've had lots of, um, you know, uh, press saying, well, they've got George Mendes's, you know, might in terms of his intelligence and football network behind him, etc., as well as obviously investment. But take the game. Just take the game to Manchester City. You're at home. Why not? Create chances. Threaten them. Make them feel insecure, which is what they did last weekend. And it was wonderful to watch. And so Man City are unsettled. And, you know, we always say that teams get found out because they play a certain way. And, you know, after a while, you can decide what it is you need to do to, to break them down, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know what? Manchester City are no different. Teams can do that too. Teams can do that to Man City, the same as teams can do it to Liverpool, Manchester United, to Sheffield Wednesday. It's, it's still the same thing. If you know what they're going to do, you can actually counter it. And it was a very, very positive way in which Wolves played against Man City. And in fact, um, I think about 20 minutes towards the end, when they made a substitution, it was a it was an attacking substitution. So it wasn't even the case that at one one they thought, oh, let's just play this game out and see what happens. No, no, no. We're going to actually threaten you again and see if we can take it two more points rather than one. So wonderful. And I think I, I said at the start of the season, Wolves will stay up. Um, I've not changed my opinion, and I think they'll be safe. Uh, and 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 fair play because um, they they have. I think a group of players and a manager who will be more positive than negative, despite the fact that they're a newly promoted team um, and they're a long time out of the Premier League, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which I think other teams in the Premier League um, who are of Wolves' size could take a lesson from. And Duncan yeah, Ryan, oh, sorry. Just, just, just to add on Wolves, I don't think it should surprise anyone that a team that has Jean Moutinho and Ruben Neves in midfield and, and the quality of players and attack they have can do something like that against Manchester City. And, and Ruben Neves, you know, you, 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 if you hear these complaints that Wolves have got George Mendes on side, and that's, that's an unfair advantage. Ruben Neves, for example, was offered around multiple Premier League clubs and multiple championship clubs before he signed for Wolves. And those clubs turned down the opportunity to sign him. So... There's a problem there with the scouting and the decision-making of other clubs. It's not that Wolves have this specific advantage that an agent is going to give all the best players um, to to them. So they, they deserve to be on the up because they've got a good strategic plan. And also, Johnny, I think I did point out last week, blowing his own trumpet, that, that Rui Patricio was, for me, the best signing in terms of goalkeepers. And I think he showed that against Manchester City with two outstanding saves. Um, as opposed to Becker and uh, Kepa at Chelsea. Definitely. I think we should start calling you Mystic McGarry. I, I, I would prefer Miriam, but if that's what you want to call me, that's fine. That was a, tw a Twitter trolls moniker for Ian in the week, which made me chuckle. <laughs> it was. I did see that, yeah. <laughs> OK, well, I think we're going to call it a day with that. I will slam this particular transfer window shut to use the cliché just a reminder that we're looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, and I'm sure some of you will after tonight's, today's podcast, we're all on Twitter and have our own Transfer Window official account, at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. In terms of us as individuals, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give us something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back as usual next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.